Hey friends, I'm Megan Meredith. I've been on an interesting journey the past 10 years. It's been full of plot twists, as I'm sure your own journey has been. One thing I've learned is that people are fascinating and full of stories. We all come from diverse backgrounds and have complicated backstories. We experience the world completely differently and we don't always agree. And that's okay because there is always something we can talk about. Hey friends, today it's just me and I wanna tell you the story. Storytelling is really important to me as an author. Conversations are really just stories and I write fiction for now. And fiction is storytelling, obviously. But one of my favorite quotes by Emily Dickinson says that we tell the truth, but we tell it slant. And that's what fiction is to me, is telling the truth, but embellishing, telling the truth, but telling it in a way that doesn't feel like you're telling it. And it's almost like covert truth, which is fun. But today I want to tell you a real story that really happened to me and what came out of that. So storytelling for me is is how we can often cut ties or release ourselves from ideas, even emotions like shame. When you tell a story in a safe place, it seems to lose its power almost or its grip on you or you feel like you can move through that once you've told it once you've uttered the words out loud storytelling is oftentimes someone else's survival guide or map how to get through something and so that's why i feel like stories are important that's why the hardest stories are the ones that we should tell to save people to people that have earned the right to hear those stories and storytelling is is how history is passed down. You know, we have stories that we remember that our parents and our grandparents told us, and that's how culture is perpetuated, both in a negative sense and a positive sense. And so storytelling is very central to who I am and what I want to do. So that's why I want to tell you this story, because it's it's silly, it's emotional, it's serious, it's all of these things. And I know some of you will identify with it, and some of you will probably roll your eyes at me. <laughs> through the course of the story, and that's okay. I'm willing to put myself out there. I'm willing to use myself to to talk about these larger concepts, to, to start these larger conversations. So here we go. So the story begins with the fact that we weren't planning on getting chickens when we did. It was always out there. It was something that we wanted to do, but we hadn't really formulated a plan. We hadn't really thought that through. And... If you get to know us at all, my husband and myself, you'll know that that's kind of our track record is things just tend to happen and we roll with it and we learn from it and things rarely, and I mean this in the quite literal sense, things rarely go the way we thought they would, which is both terrifying and spontaneous and adventurous and fun. But in a matter of hours, one day we had six chicks. We had zero idea what we were doing and that feels a lot like parenting especially our story of parenting we weren't planning on becoming parents and and then we had our oldest and it was a brilliant adventure in not having a clue what we were doing so we managed to keep them alive for the first 24 hours and that felt like a great success you know it was like when you have a baby you're like constantly are they breathing are they going to do something that's going to like they're going to hurt themselves or are they eating are they eating enough are they going to sleep do i need to sleep so 24 hours passed and we decided to go to church the next day. And so when we returned from church, one of the chicks was laying lifeless in the little hutch, the coop that we had. 
and she was still breathing and her heart was still beating, but she couldn't hold her head up and she couldn't stand. I was, of course, beside myself with worry and I texted a friend and we both started researching wildly how to save this chicken. But let's review. I'd only had them for not quite 48 hours at this point and one was on the brink of death and I was already emotionally invested and feeling like a failure as any young mom does when anything goes wrong. So it turns out that this chick had something called wire neck or wire neck. I'm not even really sure how to say that, but it happens in a lot of chickens. It's kind of like an infection or essentially like a vitamin deficiency. And so they get this sort of vitamin deficiency or an infection. And in my mind, it's almost like meningitis. It sort of infects like their, you know, their bone structure and they can't hold their heads up. So the World Wide Web said that you could feed them vitamin E and molasses because molasses actually has a lot of vitamins in it as well as sugar and that that should help and so we were like great we've researched this we know what it is we know how to help it there is a survival rate and we felt confident this right time that we could based on our emotional investedness investment we felt like we could save this chicken so over the next five days i would hold this little chick's body propping her head up between like my pointer finger and my thumb i was holding her little body and then holding her head up and I would take her to the sink and she would drink out of the faucet and I was holding her head up and I was spoon feeding her this concoction that I'd made out of vitamin E and molasses. I don't know, but I kind of dare you to spoon feed something and not get emotionally attached to it. I was fully invested in the survival of this chicken and therefore decided to name her Beyonce because I was convinced that she was going to make it, that she was a survivor. So Here's Beyonce. I'm spoon feeding her. And that's like a part time job in and of itself. Several times a day, I would I would get her to drink out of the faucet and I would watch her little tongue. And it was just fascinating even just to watch a chicken drink out of the faucet. And then I was spoon feeding her this mixture and she was doing great because as long as I could hold her up, she was she was hungry. She was thirsty and I she she could do it. I just needed to hold her head up. So by day five, she was starting to kind of flop around in her little separate box because the other thing was like you couldn't take them too far away from the rest of the flock or they'd get sad. And so you needed to keep them near but separate because you didn't want them to like infect the other chickens. And also that way she didn't get trampled by the other chickens because they were busy and playing and eating and, you know, she was just laying there. So th this whole thing is is hilarious, you know, and ridiculous that this we were going through all of this for like a tiny fits in your hand chick and so she's starting to flop around in her little separate box and she was trying to get up which was hard because she couldn't really hold her head up all the way up and I was kind of worried that she was gonna break her neck or something trying to stand up or because it was kind of back towards her legs you know her head was kind of back and her throat was out and so which is actually how they usually die because if they have this thing called wire neck or wiry neck then they do asphyxiate either because they can't hold their head up so they, you know, closes off the throat and they can't breathe or because they just malnutrition, like because they can't hold their heads up to eat, then they weren't, you know, then they, then they die either direction. But, you know, I was convinced, not Beyonce, damn it, you know. And so I came home one day at lunch and she was out of the box. And mind you, the, the box was on top of the dryer in our laundry room because the, by then it had kind of gotten a little bit cool at night. And so we brought her in and, you know, we're, we're doing all the things, all the things. So she's on top of the dryer. It's warm in there. It's humid. And she's out of the box. I'm panicking because, you know, it's a long fall from the top of the laundry room of the dryer to the floor. 
And, but then, you know, she wasn't on the floor. She wasn't behind the dryer. She wasn't behind the washer. She was nowhere in the laundry room. And so many conditions had to be just right for her survival. And then I couldn't find the chicken. And out of this, I immediately needed someone to blame. And so here's the, and the cat is this black and white fat cat. And he's kind of sassy and not very social. You know, he's, he's a bit of a prude, if you will, you know. And I started to blame this cat and I was, I was furious. I thought he had eaten the cat, even though there was no, there was no murder scene. There were no feathers. There was no blood. There was no leftover chicken legs or anything. I just thought he ate the entire chicken and I was furious. I was in tears. I was beside myself and I was literally screaming at the cat. You ate my chicken. I mean, I can't even tell you how many times I shouted at him about the chicken. So I ran I ran away from the cat so that I didn't also murder the cat. So I'm outside. I'm doubled over trying to catch my breath. And out, these words just start pouring out of me. I couldn't save the chicken. I couldn't save her. I couldn't save the chicken. I did everything right and I couldn't save her. And I start sobbing over and over. These words are coming out. I was hysterical over this chicken. I can't even accurately describe, or maybe I'm embarrassed to accurately portray how ridiculous this moment was. I couldn't save the chicken. I mean, I'm just sobbing over and over about this chicken. And then, y'all, I hear a flat queen bee was alive somewhere. So I spent the next 30 minutes tearing my house apart looking for this chicken that couldn't stand or hold its head up. I'm calling her name, Beyonce, of course, as if she could run to me at her name, you know, like come to me, I'm yelling at you. I found her finally stuck behind this box. You know, we hadn't lived here that long. There were still boxes in the house and she was stuck behind this box, clear across the house. From where the laundry room was, she was by the front door, which is a very long expanse for a chicken. How she got there and what the cat's involvement was, I will never know because he'll never fess up. And I feel certain there was some, you know, batting around like a soccer ball happening. So I recreated, she was alive. She was okay, still couldn't really hold her head up, but she was alive. Okay, so I started to calm back down. So I recreated a new living situation for the queen away from the feline that was stalking it, maybe. And we seemed to be on the mend. Her neck was maybe, by the end of this day, her neck was maybe about 50%. And she was even kind of starting to like try to walk around her new box. So in my mind, this is great success. I didn't murder the cat. I found the chicken and we are on the mend. Beyonce was going to make it, you guys. I was filled with hope, which is a roller coaster of emotion considering how much sobbing I had just done out in the grass, doubled over, sobbing these words. I couldn't save the chicken. I did everything right. I couldn't save her. No lie. Within 10 minutes of my husband getting home that evening. I told him this whole story. We laughed about it. He approved the new living situation that I had created. We even had a heat lamp going because it's kind of cool outside. So he approved this whole situation within 10 minutes of him laying eyes on her that things were looking good. Queen Bee, after all this craziness, had died. After five days of hand feeding this chicken, nursing her back from the literal grave, she was cold, stiff and dead. I sobbed again. I sobbed again as my husband told me that I had to throw her lifeless body into the woods, that I was not allowed to have a pet cemetery. 
I had to throw her in the woods. This chick that I had nursed, hand-fed several times a day, had been sick with worry over this chicken for a week. I had to throw her body in the woods. And I kid you not, I took this chicken, I held her in my hands, and I walked her to the fence line. And I asked that chicken, Beyonce, I asked Beyonce to forgive me as her little chicken body had rigor mortis by now. And I told her that I did everything I could. I did everything right. And I was sorry that I couldn't save her. And I'm even tearing up about this moment as I'm recounting it to you, which is ridiculous. But after I tossed her little rigor mortis chicken body in the woods, like a rock, I bent over and embraced myself on my knees and I tried to catch my breath. <laughs> I'm being so serious that this is, this is really a real moment. And the words came out of me again. I couldn't save it. I did everything I was supposed to. I couldn't save her. I couldn't save the chicken. Over and over, these words are just like involuntarily coming out. And even in that moment, I remember thinking I knew my reaction was heightened. I, I tend to not say things are too big because I don't like that phrase. But it was heightened, you know, it was, I was coming in hot with these emotions over this chicken. It was probably a bit intense for a chicken's passing, but I'm a new chicken mom. I'm a new farmer. And this was authentically me in this moment. When I finally caught my breath and the tears began to slow, I remember asking myself, I, I really even think I said it out loud. Is this about the chicken? Now, my husband, as I recounted the story to him, and my therapist both, because yes, I brought up the chicken in therapy. They both reminded me that even if it was authentic, and even if it wasn't heightened, even if it was, even if all of my emotions were about this chicken, that it would be okay, that it was perfectly normal to have an intense reaction to death or loss, especially holding death in your hands. I held our old elderly dog a few years ago as he died. He was a sweet schnauzer that we'd only had for six months. We got him from a, a hospice situation where his owner, his only owner, his entire life had passed. And he was 13 himself. He was sort of riddled with cancer. And we adopted him on Christmas Day. And it was just so perfect. And we gave him a beautiful six months. He had passed in my arms, and my reaction to that had been intense as well. Emotion in relation to death, emotion in relation to loss is part of being human. And so my therapist and my husband both said, if you hadn't had an emotional reaction, I might be more worried about you <laughs> than you having this heightened reaction. But honestly, I knew it was deeper. This was about me not just the death of a living thing. I had done all that I was supposed to, and I couldn't keep this thing alive. I had done what I was supposed to, and it died. Even when I had done everything I could to save it, I could not save it. Some of us grew up with this expectation that if we did what we were supposed to, then... Dot, dot, dot. And if then statement. So then what? If we did everything we were supposed to, then what? Well, then people will love us. People will be happy with us. People will approve of us. 
if we do everything we're supposed to, then we can avoid their disappointment. And if we do what we're supposed to, then we are blessed. Hashtag. If we do everything we're supposed to, then we will have an ideal husband and tantric sex for the rest of our lives. If we do what we're supposed to, then things will work out. If we do what we're supposed to, then we can avoid feeling anything unpleasant. If we do everything we're supposed to, then, then we can't be blamed for anything. It won't be our fault if things go south because we did what we were supposed to. Perfection is a way out of blame. If we do what we're supposed to, then God will be pleased with us. I did everything I was supposed to. That statement runs deep, like to the marrow deep. And it's not, it doesn't come from this grandiose sense that I think I'm perfect. I would never have, never have described myself as a perfectionist, but there was an intense sense of supposed to, of staying in line, of what was expected of me. And even if I didn't necessarily in my mind participate in all of those rules, in the perfection side of life, the cleanliness, the orderliness, the, you know, I never painted by number or inside the lines or any structure like that. I just wanted to paint, right? That's the metaphor. It's literal, but it's also a metaphor, right? So this is not coming from a sense that I think I'm perfect. Please don't hear that. I have messed up in monumental ways, just like everyone else. But I think that this idea, I did everything I was supposed to, that comes from a deep fear. That fear then leads to trying to control the outcome, managing outcomes as a way to avoid my feelings, right? Or managing outcomes as a way to avoid others' feelings. Just like I said a second ago, if I do what I'm supposed to, I can avoid them being disappointed in me them being angry at me, them leaving me, them rejecting me. So managing outcomes as a way to avoid either my feelings or their feelings, and I'm managing outcomes by trying to do everything I'm supposed to, quote unquote, supposed to, right? Now, some of you are like, Meg, I think you're overthinking this. Like, your chicken died, let it go. It's not that deep. But to me, as a storyteller and just my very personality, sometimes life gives us opportunities to see ourselves and learn. And I truly believe that Beyonce gave me this moment. I cannot save things. I can't salvage things. I can't control the outcome, no matter how good I am at doing all of the right things, or even how good I try to be. I can't save things. Things being outcomes, things being relationship, things being the way things turn out, right? Those outcomes, the way my kids turn out, the way a situation goes, the way a conversation goes. I can't control the outcome, no matter how good I think I am at doing the right things. Number one, doing the right things is like a moving target, but it's also an unsustainable goal because I'm coming from a place of controlling the outcome. I can't avoid people abandoning me, 
being upset with me, failing me by trying to please them all the time. Now, for my other recovering people pleasers, let me say that again. I cannot avoid people abandoning me, being upset with me, failing me by trying to please them all the time because there's two people in that relationship and them abandoning me or being upset with me has equal parts or more to do with them and the state that they're in because I was doing everything right by Beyonce but she was the other part of that relationship and her little body couldn't sustain life right so I can't force her saving, I don't even like that word, sounds religious, but I'm not speaking religiously about it. I'm just saying I couldn't save her, right? I couldn't force that on her, and I did everything I was supposed to. I can't avoid death, loss, just by doing what I'm supposed to. I had a friend tell me the other day that conflict feels like abandonment because of a situation that happened in their childhood so that then in their adulthood, conflict always created this trigger of this person is going to leave me. They're angry or fighting. This will eventually result in abandonment or rejection of some sort. So lots of times I think we learn. We talked a little bit about this in the episode with Dr. Carol Scott, my aunt, about those aces, those things in our childhood that then develop into coping skills as adults. And I think doing what we're supposed to, trying to be as good as we can all the time in order to please people comes from an avoidant behavior. I'm avoiding a death of a relationship. I'm avoiding a loss by doing what's expected of me, of trying to please that person, of letting them control me in order to avoid rejection. And I know that sounds like an extreme connection to make avoiding loss by doing the right things to a chicken. But I know, I know that I'm not alone in this. Some of us have learned to make this connection through specific relationships. And some of us have learned it through religion. And some of us have learned it through trauma. And some of us have even gotten all three layers. Death, loss, seasons changing, people exiting my life. Those are all natural parts of life parts of being human. But the thing is, friends, we don't have to strive to do everything that is expected of us in order to avoid emotions. The emotions that come from and come with death, loss, seasons changing, people exiting my life. Someone's disappointment is not my assignment. Someone's abandonment is not my assignment. The loss of a relationship is not solely on me. The morphing of a dream is not necessarily within my control. There's so many elements, right? All of those little conditions had to be just right, I thought, in order to save Beyonce. But really, it was so out of my control. And I know that we live in a space where that gets said a lot. You're not in control. It's not about you. But when it came to saving that chicken, all of a sudden it was dependent on me. And I think that that showed me, me, more than anything has in a long time. 
I truly believed it was up to me to find out how to save her, to move through the steps appropriately, correctly, in order to save this relationship, the chicken and me. But I can't live up to people's standards because their standards honestly have nothing to do with me. And so those standards that get put on us as children, as young adults, as adults, as coworkers, as spouses, as friends, those standards come from that other person. And I don't have to avoid their feelings by trying to live up to a standard that I didn't even create for myself. I can't save myself from people's disappointment because their disappointment is more to do with them than it is to do with me. I can't actually save myself from being abandoned. Someone's inability to be in relationship is not actually my fault. Their unwillingness to be in relationship with me, they might say it has to do with me, but it honestly has to do with them. That's their willingness. That's whether or not they like me. That's whether or not they can tolerate me. And it also has to do with them and their whole framework that they grew up in. And it has less to do with whether or not I'm lovable, right? So I can't save myself from being abandoned. I don't actually have to manage people's feelings because their feelings are not my problem to solve. This releases us from defensiveness, which I think is one of my biggest pet peeves is when people are defensive about feelings. I don't have to manage other people's feelings. I don't have to correct their feelings. I don't have to realign their feelings. I, th other people's feelings are not my problem to solve. Feelings aren't actually a problem to solve. They're just data points. They are feedback from our bodies and our framework. But we feel so threatened by other people's feelings. We get defensive because I think underneath that defensiveness is a need to control the outcome, right? It's all connected. It's all under there, whether we are willing to see it or not. We don't want that person to be upset with us. We're trying to control the outcome because we're supposed to do what's expected of us. We're supposed to do all the right things because if we do what we're supposed to, then I don't have to carry the weight of other people's choices, only my own. That releases us from shame and guilt actually did everything I could to save Beyonce. So I'm responsible for my efforts. I'm responsible for my choices. I could have just like let her die that first day and not researched and not done all the things. I put in all the effort to save it, to save that chicken. And that's all I can do. I don't have to shame myself for outcomes. I can only own my role in it. And I don't have to save the world or anyone, or even myself. I'm just here to be a loving human and learn. I grew up in a space where the expectation was put on me religiously, spiritually, that I actually was in charge of sort of saving the world. And that's a lot of pressure for a kid. That's a lot of pressure for an adult, that it was my responsibility to sort of cross boundaries and tell people that they were wrong and that they needed to believe what I believed in order to attain something. And I think about that now and I think about how kind of gross that is that that we were literally taught, groomed, coerced, 
to cross boundaries, to convince people that they were going to hell, that they were wrong, like their very essence was wrong. And I was taught that my very essence was wrong. But I'm learning to release myself from that, that I don't have to save the world. It's not actually my job to save anyone. The pressure was still there to participate in it. That people became an agenda, and I'm, I'm getting off on a rabbit trail a little bit, but I feel it, so I'm going there, that people were projects. Every conversation had an agenda, that it was my job to steer everything towards a certain goal, and, and that people needed to jump through hoops to belong with me, or the group that I belonged to, or there were such high expectations about doing everything the way you were supposed to do it. But I guess as I near 40, I'm just wanting to exist lightly on this earth. I just want to be a loving human and learn as much as I can and give out what I feel like needs to be given out. It's not up to me if you like me, if you love me, if you approve of me, or even stay near me. And that's been a hard one in the past year. I've lost some pretty central relationships and, and maybe for different reasons. But that staying near me is, is a hard one when you have people kind of exit your life and choose not to be around you or make assumptions about you or, or gaslight you or talk bad about you or whatever it is that it, that's not actually up to me. I can't, I can't actually save people from doing that. I can't be good enough to the point where people don't do that. So, Here's the caveat. I have some acquaintances and they would say things that sort of sound like this. That your perception is not my problem kind of thing. And it gives them permission to sort of act like an asshole all the time. Like releasing yourself from other people's perceptions and standards and feelings does not actually give you permission to act like an asshole. I think that's actually being a narcissist. And, I, and it's not really that F you attitude. That's not really what I'm talking about here. I'm just talking about releasing yourself from that perfectionism that comes from a place of trying to control the outcome, of trying to control whether or not people love you, people stay near you, people approve of you, or you're blessed. You know, if you're being abusive and hurtful and obtuse to other people's feelings, then then other people's feelings kind of do have something to do with you because you're inflicting harm. You're being abusive. So other people's feelings are actually kind of directly pointing back to you. So if you're, you're being emotionally, physically, or mentally abusive, and that includes neglect, then yeah, there is that direct correlation between the two. But what I'm talking about is releasing yourself from the burden of perfection as a way to avoid pain, not release yourself from the responsibility of my own actions, the ripples that they cause, and my shortcomings. There has to be that balance of taking responsibility, but releasing yourself from perfection. To like do your best, to be impeccable with your words, to do no harm, those are all foundations of yoga and even in the medical world. And then release yourself from the outcome, knowing that you have done your best. You've been true to yourself and to God, whatever 
feels authentic to you for that. And if you've been patterned your whole life like me, then being true to yourself is going to feel sticky at first. It might even feel selfish. You might not even know where your true self begins and where it ends. People might view you as selfish or bitchy or bossy or rigid or bristly. You might even get called those things. But that's because they've been benefiting from your people-pleasing, from your perfectionism, from your avoidant behaviors. So notice that when, when people call you those things or kind of buck up to the boundaries that you're setting or are confused with what's happening, just observe that because those are the people that have been benefiting from the other. Because at the end of the day, you can do everything you were supposed to and the chicken still dies. You can't save yourself from pain by people pleasing or achievement or overworking or climbing ladders or making money or being controlling or avoiding feeling anything or numbing out. You can't save the chicken. And that's honest to God, something I've started muttering to myself when I can't control the outcome, when someone exiting my life is hurtful, when people are disappointed with me, when things aren't the way I thought that they would be, I can't save the chicken. It's actually kind of releasing. Some people say things like it's not my circus or, or whatever version of that kind of, it's just kind of releasing to be like, this is not, this is not on me. You can't save the chicken. It doesn't mean quit. It doesn't mean that you just abandon everything, that kind of effort attitude that we already talked about. It just means that you loosen your grip on your situation, that you do your best to exist lightly, that you do no harm, that you're impeccable with your words and you keep showing up knowing that you can't always save the chicken. I can't save the chicken. I don't have to do everything everyone else thinks I'm supposed to do. And I certainly don't have to try to be perfect in order to avoid losing the chicken. I can't save the chicken. That's all for now, friends. Thanks for listening to that whole saga. I hope that this landed with you today, or at the very least, it made you laugh. Our music for this podcast is by Michael Curtis. This episode was written, produced, and edited by myself, Megan Meredith. As always, if you'd like to become a member, the link is in the show notes where you can become a member for just $5 a month. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more next time.